James is the old-fashioned, bringing the, the old kind of advice, the old-style exhortations to bear onto New Testament new people. So, so James is writing, and he's in the New Testament, and there's new people, there's new problems, there's new sins, there's a new community of God, there's new, there's new Testament promises, there's a, there's a new gospel, and yet none of those things are actually all that new, and none of the problems are actually all that novel. And so what James is going to do, here's your... He's your um, mid-40s veteran digger who just says things the way they are because he cares about results, not feelings. Okay, if I can summarize James for you, it's shut your mouth, get to work, quit your, quit your, your adulterous relationship with the world, you bunch of whores. I've met demons that have better faith than you. If you're sad, pray. If you're happy, sing, get to work. I don't care about how you feel. And, and if you want to hug, go talk to Peter. Peter's the huggy guy. I'm not the hugging guy. Okay, if... If Clint Eastwood got saved and then wrote a letter, it'd be James. That's, that's what I think. This, he's old-fashioned. He just says it the way that it is. He says stuff like, you know, in the Old Testament, we had ways of dealing with this, okay? You guys, you guys need an old, good old-fashioned exile. You know what you need? You need, a, you need a good old-fashioned stoning. Back in the Old Testament, I tell you what, you know, we had ways of dealing with. That's, that's James. <clears throat> and he's not confused. He's not confused at all. A lot of people want to want to come in at this point and, and start saying that because because this is such a uh, an early epistle that was written and because it's so Old Testament themed, it feels like an Old Testament book. They they sort of try and say that that he was confused and that he disagrees with Paul and it's not technically a Christian book. In fact, it was probably fake and it was not truly written by the person that says wrote it. They have all these all these issues with it. But but what we need to realize is is that it's not confusion. It's not contradictory. It's none of those things. It's just the first letter that's being written in the Bible. And this guy is a Jew writing to Jewish Christians. It's the first book. He's, he's really feeling like, like when they put it into themes or they try and put this kind of book somewhere into a category of Bible book, they say it probably fits in the wisdom literature. Like, like Proverbs or like Ecclesiastes, those really practical, pithy, short, not full of theological treatises, right? This is not Paul writing to a heresy and trying to fix everything. This is James writing to a situation to just encourage people. It's Pastor James, not Pastor Paul, and we have to, we have to read both and pull apart both for the glory of God. So, so he's addressing a group of people that, he's, that he loves and that he knows and that he's been pastor over for a long, long time, and they need a pastoral right hand of fellowship. They need his exhortation, his spurring, and his encouragement. So read with me chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to go through the end of verse 8 and then expound it. It reads like this. <coughs> James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For then you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind and waves. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, 
unstable in all of his ways. May God bless the reading of his own inerrant, precious, authoritative word in our midst this evening. We get to meet James. It, it says here, that's the, the first word of the epistle, it's, is that it's, it's James, and he doesn't put in a lot of detail there about who he is. There's lots of theories about, well, there's basically four theories about who it is, because there's a bunch of Jameses in the New Testament. One of them, which is the apostle, is dead by this point in history. Anyway, he was, he was the first uh, apostle to die. He was, had his head chopped off. Then there was um, a couple of other Jameses around, but, but everything points to it being James, Jesus' brother. In fact, history tells us that James was a pastor in the Jerusalem church. He was, he was a spiritual leader. He was a respected man. And, and what we don't see is him going to all the details and say, I'm James, Jesus' brother. He doesn't say that. Uh, and, and in fact, you might think, well, surely it's a fake James pretending to be him. But because this is what the scholars try and say is they pull apart the scripture. and They, they go, you know what? If, if it was the real James, he would have said that he was the brother. Except that actually works against itself. If it's the real James, he doesn't need to explain who he is. Everybody knows who he is. In fact, if he was the fake James, then what you find in ancient literature is that they always go into all the details about who they are and who they know because they're faking the letter. But this is not, this is not the case. He doesn't have anything to boast except for the fact that he's a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we said, James is in about his mid-40s. And what he says here, at this point in his life, what he has learned is that he is a servant first and foremost of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a Jew, that is, that is a very difficult line to write, to put, to put God next to anybody else's name and say that you serve God along with anybody else is, is akin to idolatry. In the Jewish mind, to, to serve is to worship. To serve is to worship. So, so that if you're serving somebody and God, you have two masters. You have two gods. Jesus warned against that. You can't have two masters. It, James sees no problem here. Orthodox, Old Testament, monotheistic James has no problem with saying, I'm, I'm a servant of God and Jesus. Because to him, he has come to realize that, that they are the same triune God. That, that he who he is now worshiping, there was his brother that he always got in fights with and always lost in arguments with and always lost. It was always James's fault. He was always getting in trouble because of Jesus' perfect little record. That Jesus, he now recognizes. I'm, I'm going to put him on the same level as God. I serve him just as I serve God. James has not always been like this. Remember back to Mark chapter 3, he had a problem with Jesus' habit of saying things like, I'm on par with God, you worship him, you worship me, you serve him, you serve me. James was not a fan of that. In Mark chapter 3, James and his other brothers and his sisters and even Mary, even Mary, who, who if anybody believed the virgin story, it was Mary, other people may have doubted it, other people may have called her crazy, but she knew, even she Plus, all the kids were coming after Jesus, saying that that's just enough. We're done with this whole public ministry thing. You've got to come home. You're crazy. They actually told everybody else, please don't stone him. Please don't kill him. Please don't put him under blasphemy laws. He's just out of his mind. Excuse him. Send him home with us. We'll put him in a, in a, in a very tight little white jacket and a small room with, with very big bars. We'll put him away. Please don't kill him. That, that was James. That was, his, that was his life. As Jesus was doing ministry, he was not following, he was not supporting, he was not at all believing. And yet 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, says that in, in Jesus' life, 
between his resurrection and his ascension, there was 40 days there that he spent on earth doing miracles, teaching about the kingdom of God in clarity to his disciples before he rose again, and uh, sorry, before he, he, he arose to heaven. Uh, and, and Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, that he appeared also to James. That's his conversion moment. That's what makes every Thing else makes sense. The perfect life that I could never sting you and catch you red-handed, Jesus. The, 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 the way you would preach and you would teach and the way you expounded scripture from an early age, it starts to make sense when the guy you saw die by the hands of the Romans and be buried, when he's up again and he's talking and preaching and healing and doing exactly what only God can do, you believe. James believed. He was given a heart of faith by the sovereign God after Jesus rose from the dead. And so now he's willing to say, he's my Lord. He is my God. I have no problem with calling my brother the Lord Jesus. He was, he was known as James the Just in his life because he was so holy. He loved God's law. He lived a holy, just, righteous life. But he also had a nickname that was sort of, it translates as camel knees. He had such big, thick knees, not because he was a, a second rower in some rugby team or, or, or a tyler or anything like that. He had horrible knees because he was a prayer. He would pray hours and hours every day on his knees and so that he had these, these huge, callous, cobbly knees. This is James. He loves the Lord Jesus, his brother. He worships him as God and he sees him on par with God. I serve God and I serve Jesus Christ. He ended up becoming the lead pastor in Jerusalem, as we saw among all of the, the early converts. And we've said the, that that was a mega church. If you track in the early chapters of Acts, the book of Acts, Acts basically 2 through, through 9 or so, you see the, the explosion of the church as it is tens of thousands of people large. James was one of the leaders there. James is one of the main pastors over the preaching and teaching ministry of those tens of thousands of people. He was a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. So look at your verse 1. I know we're only on like the second word here, but, but we're, 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 our pace is okay. <laughs> Mine says a servant. This is the ESV. Some others might say a slave or a bondservant. The most honest and, since we're in James, the most politically incorrect way to say is a slave. James calls himself a slave of the Lord Jesus and of God. In other words, he owns me. He's purchased me. He's redeemed me from the abusive slavery of sin. And now am I, a, I am a proud, joyful, willful slave, lifelong possession of the Lord Jesus. He tells me what he wants me to do. He, he gives me the law. He gives me the commands. I am at his whim. That is what James says. I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ and of God. And, and again, look at that language. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've said that this is an early epistle. The first, letter, the first New Testament book is written is James. And one of the things the scholars try and do is they say Christianity was just a mess. It was just a bunch of confused Jews, and none of it was really true, but they had to figure out what their new beliefs would be so that then they would have a new religion to extort money out of people and gain, gain political power, etc., etc., blah, blah, blah. They're all wrong. But anyway, they say what happened is that Paul came onto the scene, and he unified everything. He went out to the desert. I literally read a, 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 a criticism that said he smoked some kind of Persian mushrooms. He had visions. He comes back, and he 
he's, he's detailed all of the theology. He goes, you know, I've, I've discovered all this stuff now. It's justification by faith alone. And there's a, there's a triune God now. And Jesus is, is sort of this emanation of God. And there's this thing called the Holy Spirit. And here's what we have to look forward to in the future. It's all, uh, it's all, it's all nonsense. That, that, that's what they're saying. But they believe that until Paul comes around about 10 years later, there's no, there's no unified body of Christian doctrine. It's absolutely untrue. Well, one of the things that they point to is James and say, this early, early book has, has a very low Christology. In other words, the, his doctrine of Jesus is, is sort of non-existent, and he doesn't go into big explanations about who Jesus is and how he came back from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God and all of that stuff. But we've already mentioned why. James is writing a letter to people in a situation. He's not writing a treatise like Paul to argue against a heresy. What you find even here in the very first line, when James says, of the Lord Jesus Christ, is very, very high Christology. This is very exalted language to use of, of a man, to, to use of Jesus. As he says, he is Lord and he is Christ. That is to say that he is the two highest names that the Old Testament can give to anybody. It's saying that he is the Christ, which, which the Hebrew version of that is, is uh, the Messiah, the, the Messiah. It means the anointed one, the chosen one, he who would come and, and shed blood for the people, make a sacrifice, atone for sin, become the high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. All of this language is to do with being the Christ, the chosen king and priest and he's also called him Lord, that is the reigning one, the sovereign over all things that would receive all authority from the Father as in the ancient of days visions in Daniel. In other words, James has very, very high Christology. But he assumes it. James isn't going to give us big theological treaties about the, uh, this high Christology. He's just going to assume his theology because he's been teaching these people for 15 years. They know him. He knows them. He knows what they believe. This is a letter to a situation. And you see the, the people who are receiving it. He says, I'm James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and God, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greetings. The dispersion, well, well first he says the, the 12 tribes. This is nicknames for the Old Testament people of God, the Jews. Because they were, they were made up, like if I was to say I, I, I wrote a letter to the 50 states, you'd know exactly what country on earth I'm talking about. Uh, and, and, and so it is that, that when, when he says 12 tribes, everybody knows that he's talking about the Jews who were made up of those 12 main tribes that came from Israel. And so he's, he's writing to Jews, and yet he's writing to the true Jews, because this whole letter is about Jesus and living for him, and so he's definitely writing to Christians. So he's writing to that sort of overlap group of people that are both ethnically Jewish from the Old Testament and yet received the Lord Jesus Christ, their Messiah, as they were supposed to do and have been saved and entered the new covenant people of God called the church. This is what the Old Testament calls the remnant there's this, there's this group of people from the Old Testament that, that while everyone else is going wrong, God will preserve his people. They will receive the promised blessings. And there's been this group of Christians saved throughout the early chapters of Acts that are now a, a Jewish church in Jerusalem. However, they're in a dispersion. 
Verse 1 says, the 12 tribes, I'm, I'm writing to the Jews, but the true Jews, the spiritual Jews, the ones who did receive their Messiah, those Christian Jews who are in the dispersion. In other words, those who have been dispersed, those who are separated from your hometown, those who are, and what this really means is this word dispersion, it, it means Jews in countries other than Jerusalem, in countries other than Judah and Israel. That's what it means. In fact, he's pulling over from the Old Testament when the diaspora or the dispersion was spoken of when the Jews were under judgment. When the other nations came in by the hand of God, they punished them, they killed them, they slaughtered them, they burned the temple, and then they spread the Jews all over the world so as to water down their race and weaken them. That's called the dispersion. It was, it was a sign of, of judgment when God came in, and you read about this in the early covenantal writings of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy. When they, when they refused to obey God, God would come in, destroy their strongholds, and spread them apart in cursing. And yet, James is not saying that these Jewish Christians are under the judgment of God and therefore kicked out of Jerusalem. Rather, rather they've been spread for the purpose of God's mission. We read this in Acts chapter 9 through 11 that, that because of Paul, yeah, the Paul who gets saved and becomes an apostle, because of his persecution, all of the Jewish Christians did what they were always supposed to do, which is to go out to all of the other nations. They, they had to run away and they start going all over the, the Roman Empire to, to flee this persecution. And as they go, some of them, Acts chapter 11 tells us, are even bold enough to speak the gospel to non-Jews. And then churches start getting planted, especially the church of Antioch, which becomes one of the main churches in the New Testament, where Paul stays for about 10 years as a teaching elder before he and Barnabas are shot off to do the first, second, third missionary journeys, and the rest is history. So, so the persecution starts, and that's what he means by the dispersion. So here's James, brother of Jesus, was, was the leader of a megachurch in Jerusalem that is now whittled down to a, to a smaller amount of people, still more getting saved every day because the gospel triumphs. But nonetheless, the, the megachurch has become a small church. The Jewish Christians are now spread over the kingdom and he's writing to them to compel them in their obedience and in their love to the Lord Jesus Christ. So look now at verse 2. <clears throat> Verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Trials of various kinds. He knows that trials are, 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 are never just one-sided. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be good if it was like a, maybe a vending machine or, or something like that where you just got one trial at a time and God just waited until you were done learning all the lessons you could from that lesson in that relational problem you were having before then he sent financial problems and, and then before he sent health problems and then before he sent employment problems. Why does he, why does he do that? I don't know, he's God. He's been doing this as long as he's been God, is testing and trying and training his people. And so James says, when you're in this multifaceted, multi-layered, messy trial called life, when the heat gets turned up, consider it joy. Consider it joy. Not because of the trial itself. That, that's masochistic. It, it's not as if you've got you to put on a big bright face and you pretend that you're just fine. And, and you know when, when your cousin gets killed by the Jews, rock up to that funeral singing a little ditty about the joy, joy, joy that you've got down in your heart and do little circle dances on his grave. Just be happy. He's not saying that. 
He's saying, consider it a joy. You won't experience it as a joy. It will not feel as a joy, but mindset changes everything. Consider it a joy. You know, he's sort of using accounting language. When you sit down and you're running through the accounts and you think of this time that you're in in life, don't put it in the God ruined me section. Don't put it in the debt section. Put it in the assets. Count it as a joy, not for what it is itself, but for what it produces, for what you can see it producing. So look again in verse 2. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet these trials of various kinds, for, here's why, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So we see already two reasons that we can start considering it joy. is first of all because it proves your faith, Secondly, because it improves your faith. So, first of all, <coughs> it proves your faith. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This, this proving is what we mean there in the word of test. In other words, you've, you've come to this point in your life, and you, you would have said that you were saved, and, and you had a faith, and you had a belief, and, and yet you just, maybe you wouldn't bank your whole eternity on it. You, you've got some doubts. You, you're pretty sure you're a Christian. And, and what God does is he brings you into this trial. He turns up the heat so that you can start seeing how, how word-based, how Bible-based your faith is and how feelings-based. How personal and inward your faith is or maybe how, how much just borrowed from your family your faith is. How genuinely, deeply rooted into your soul your faith is or, or how sort of just traditional, like this is my culture, this is, this is what I, I sort of got taught to do and I do it okay. I, I was a choir boy, I helped set up church, I, I, got, I made my way by. Trials start showing you the actual state and value of the faith that you have. It's proving your faith to you. I, I, I know this is just going to make me sound extremely white, but since we're doing our old-fashioned stuff, anybody else watch Antique Roadshow when their grandparents babysitted them? I'm, there's a couple. If you even know what I mean, uh, then, then I know you watch Antiques Roadshow when all these old white people in England would go and rock up to a little estate and the, the pros would be there and they would be testing people's antiques and bric-a-brac and knick-knacks. So what you do is you go and find your vase, you find your painting, you find the little weird clock thing with a ballerina on it that some dead auntie left to you, you dust off the the, the and you take it to these pros and they sit down in front of a camera and they tell you how much this is actually worth. They prove what you have and tell you what you genuinely have. And there's always two groups of people. There's two groups of people. There's, there's the woman who tries to say, I cannot wait for you to tell me how much this is worth. My friend assured me that the king gave this to her best friend's cousin's friend in person. Okay, the, the king. We haven't had a king for 100 years. No, I'm sure it was definitely, it was the king of, of Newmark, of Denway. No, that's not a country. I'm sure this is real. And what they end up finding is that this thing they've spent $300 to buy and wrap up and bring to the market is worth like 12 bucks. So three pounds, whatever, in England. 
And then, then there's the other guy who just plops up some dirty old briefcase on it and goes, I don't know, but my uncle said it was, it was his favorite, you know, antique, whatever. And they open it up and they go through it. Like, this is handcrafted, pearl, plates, whatever it is. And go, You've got 40,000 pounds that you're sitting on right here. You, you can buy three houses if you were to sell this. And, and he starts realizing, like, I had this all the time. This is what mine is worth. Like, I love watching those two reactions. Sucks to be the first guy, always. And yet that's what proving means. Nobody came up to that road show and had their money taken from them or given to them. They were simply made aware of what they always had, and so it is with trials. God is, uh, in the first sense, it's not that a trial itself makes you a Christian or that a trial takes away your faith, but rather it starts polishing it off, dusting off the tradition, dusting off the fakeness, dusting off your, your own profession, and it starts getting down to the reality. Is this real faith? That is what trials do. And therefore, we should take joy in them. It may be a nerve-wracking process to go through having your faith tested, and yet you don't want to be self-assured that you have saving faith and then be found on Judgment Day to have had damning, untrue, unsaving faith. You don't want to be the guy that grew up in church, said all the hymns, helped lead stuff, served his way through, but had a secret life of sin that you thought this was going to be okay. And because God never tested you, you never saw the true, the, 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 the falsehood, I should say, of your faith. You don't want to be that, that man. You don't want to be that woman. And yet, if you do have saving faith, if you could be assured that if you would just get it tested, you would, you would, you would skyrocket in value and your net worth would, would fly through the roof, if you could be assured of that, then you would willingly receive from the Lord both good and terrible news, as trials prove your faith. Therefore, we consider them a joy. But we've said also that they improve your faith. They prove it, and they improve it. So, so look at verse 3 again. He says, you consider it joy because you know that the testing of your faith, that's what we've just spoken about, the proving of the quality of your faith, produces steadfastness. That is, that it, it, act, it doesn't just assess you. It doesn't just give you a report. It, it's not, it's not the, 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 the x-ray that, that simply leaves you unchanged. It's the assessment that is then also able to train you up. It, it proves your faith and improves you. It tests you and it trains you. It gauges you and it gives you faith. The trial itself, it's, it's like compared to maybe an, an x-ray at the dentist's or doctor's, compared to an x-ray at the airport, okay? I don't know if you guys had any fun friends growing up, but when we went on a school trip, one of the guys had brought a packet of kitchen knives, snuck it into the teacher's suitcase because the teacher was his mum, made it all way more funny, so that when she went through security, what they start seeing come up is just 12 sharpened steak knives in the suitcase, now, at that point, I had another friend who had, a, who had a, a, a hand grenade belt buckle that he just didn't think not to wear to the airport. Genius, I know. Threw it into the conveyor belt, threw it, went. He was tackled in like three seconds. It was, it was awesome. But here's the point. When, when they're x-raying you at the airport, you're never doing so confident that they're going to help you. Like, like when they find knives in your suitcase, they don't say, hey, come here, come here. You have a knife problem. 
I, I want to help you here. I, I want to see you overcome this, this carrying knives onto the airplane problem that you have. And, and should we talk about that? We've got a counselor in the corner. No, no, they don't care. They're not assessing you so that they can help you. They are assessing you so that they can remove the threat. Whereas at, at a doctor's, at a dentist, they're, they're taking x-rays, not merely so that they can tell you whether or not you're allowed in, they're taking an x-ray so that they might see what needs to be helped. Saying, look, look, this is going to hurt, but, but I see this cavity and this problem, and you eat way too much sugar, and I know you told me you did when you come in, but you don't floss. I know that. Let's fix that. Or they're saying, you know, here's where your knee's problematic. I'm going to have to fix some ligament damage here. I, I, I also see some muscular damage here, and I'm here to help you. X-ray to help or x-ray to judge. How do you see your trial? God is not merely putting you through faith. Now, let's sort of just push back on our prosperity gospel neighbors and, and friends who will say that God brings you through life, and if you suffer, God's, God's telling you you don't have faith. So, so here's the, the airport analogy. You're, you're going through things, and what you need to realize is if, if you're suffering, oh, oh if, if you had a failed pregnancy, oh, if you can't get the promotion you've been striving for, if you keep getting sick, if, if your kid leaves home, then you just don't have real faith. Like You're one of those Christians that you know, they might get into heaven, okay, but you don't, you don't get rich, you don't get wealthy, you don't get uh, healthy, you don't have a, an amazing polished family, you know, you don't have good faith. That's not the case. It's not that he's saying he, he's testing you so as to judge your faith like that. Rather, rather, the trials come upon every one of us, and there is no sense in which Christians should think if you go through hardships and God's angry at you, or if you go through hardships, then, then you just don't have real faith, as if people who had real faith like Jesus, nothing bad would happen to you, right? You could just be Jesus, and the only thing that would happen to you is like, you get persecuted your whole life and butchered on a tree. Hashtag blessed. That's not the case. Trials are given to us that they might produce joy because they assess our faith and they actually give training to them. And, and the training, the outcome of our trials, you can see in verse 3 and 4, he says the testing of your faith actually produces something. God tests and then he trains. And what he's training in you is endurance. Steadfastness is the other word it's translated as here. It produces steadfastness, which when it has its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's just three ways of putting on top of each other. God has, as his highest aim for your life, perfect Christ-likeness, not happiness. Holiness, not happiness. Because for all true children of God, when you have holiness, you have your highest joy. He's making you complete, lacking in nothing, making you perfect. A three-way, a three-chord str string of saying, he is doing this for your good. So this is simply better news. It's better news than saying, if you're going through trials, but if you've got really good faith, you'll make it, so it's okay. Because what is every Christian who's in the midst of a trial and feels anything other than perfectly sufficient, what do you say? Well, you say, I'm not sure I do have that faith. And that's great good news for the sufficient, but, but what about me, the, the Christian with failing faith, with weak faith, with struggling faith? No, it's better news than that. That's not what James is saying. He's saying it's good news 
Because if you have faith in Christ at all, maybe even saved two days, two weeks, two years, maybe the, the, the most immature Christian, the most struggling Christian in the house, if you have faith in Christ at all, then trials will prove your faith and improve your faith. That's God's promise. They'll never be able to remove you from him. They'll never be able to undo <coughs> your sanctification and leave you in a heap on the side of the road. He is a, a covenant-keeping God. You need to hold that tightly to your chest. You need to, you need to hold Romans 8's promises tightly to your chest when Paul says that tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, death, life, angels, rulers, things that are present now, things that are yet to come, powers, heights, depths, anything else in all creation, nothing will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's why you can consider it joy, because it will show you what's truly in you about your faith, and it will, it will improve your faith, grow your faith, strengthen your faith, so that on the other side of this, you can look back and say, I, I don't know how to answer it. I don't know how to explain it. But I know that whatever in me is still resting on Jesus, this thing is not of my making. This thing is divine. This thing is a miracle. This, this is a supernatural gift from God, or it would, have, it would have wiped out. It would have withered away. But the Christian in trials is able to have that joy. We finish here in uh, verses 5 through 8. First of all was trials and joy. And secondly, we see trials and wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. The very important question is that when he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, the first thing you need to ask is, how do I know I lack wisdom? The great thing about lacking wisdom is that the less you have of it, the less you know that you don't have it. I remember a friend knocking on my door at 2 a.m. in the morning, blind drunk, and I came to my house, blind drunk, asking if he could come in. I said, are you, are you okay? And he, he's covered in vomit. I've never been better. This is what Proverbs says, is that folly is tied to drunkenness because, because without wisdom, you have no insight. You're like a guy stumbling on the road. You make this decision. I'm going to walk on this side of the road now. Actually, the, the street pole looks right. I'm going to go headbutt the street pole. This is what drunk people do. And with drunkenness comes, the, the, like, the drunker you get, the less you realize that you're losing your inhibition. It's like that with wisdom. The less you have, the less you even know what wisdom is, and the less you're able to assess yourself. So how do we know that we have wisdom? Folly would here, let, let's speak about what, what folly would look like. Foolishness would look like hearing anything that James just said about trials, endurance, faith improvement, the sovereignty of God, giving you joy and sanctification. Folly would hear any of that and say, I would prefer the trial be over than have those things. You've promised endurance, you've promised Christ-likeness, you've promised joy, you've promised faith, you've promised sanctification. I would prefer this trial be over than have those things. That's folly. Folly would say that it would be the kind of mindset that leaves you crippled by regret. 
wishing every single day that you could go back in time and avoid whatever thing led to this trial. Despite what God says about his sovereignty and ability to redeem situations for his glory, if your mindset is, I just wish that I could go back and change it, you want the ability that only God has, and he made sure when he decreed your life, he included that folly in this trial. Folly says, I wish this could change. I think God could have done a better job in his plan. Folly looks like taking no joy in the trial, having no peace or rest in your soul because of the promise that God is giving you endurance. That just doesn't really matter to you compared to what you're losing. I would prefer to have the funds back. I would prefer to have the friends back. I would prefer to have the health back than have this thing called endurance to the end. That is the mindset of folly. If you can't point to a single lesson that your soul has learned through the trial you're currently in, you have folly and you need wisdom. The next question we might ask, how do I know I need wisdom? Secondly, we can ask, what is wisdom? Real practical, what what is wisdom? Wisdom is simply the ability to apply God's word to life. It's, It's not just how you know, how much you know. It's not what you know. It's how that knowledge lands in your real life. Like, yeah, you've you've just finished Calvin's Institute. Institutes, can't even say it. Uh, you've just read Calvin's Institutes, but are you managing that tough decision at work? No, no, I'm putting that off. But uh, you know, I've really dug into chapter three, book four this week. Okay, great. You know, I've, I've, I've learned, I've downloaded all the sermons we've been preaching. I've got them all in my head. That's awesome. Okay, what are you doing about your wife's struggles in this area that she keeps mentioning to you? Ah, it's sort of irrelevant. God's sovereign, I just learned in, in the light, latest sermon I, I read. You, you're able to grow in knowledge, but when once it starts landing in your life and actually changing how you interact with other people, how you interact with sin, how you, how you pursue godliness in your life in the short term and in the long term, that is true wisdom. So a Christian is unable to grow without wisdom, just like a child cannot grow without a digestive tract. Lots of stuff will go in you, but it does not grow you. Lots of things may happen to you in life, but if you don't have wisdom, none of them are churned into these lessons and then, and then applied to your life. Without wisdom, you simply cannot grow as a Christian. Lifelong malnourishment will come to you spiritually without wisdom and sure death if you do not have the wisdom that comes from above. And yet, if you do not have it, the promise of verse 5 holds strong. If you lack it, if you just said to the things we just said about what wisdom is and how to know if you've got it, if you're, yeah, absolutely, I need it, I don't have it, I would love more of that, then you may ask God because he gives generously without finding fault and it will be given to you. He, it says in the ESV, without reproach. It means without finding fault. Isn't it comforting that you're coming to God and the lack of your wisdom does not preclude you from receiving wisdom? It's not as if you're coming and God assesses you through the trial and learns you have very little faith and you're very unwise, therefore I'm holding back faith and wisdom. No, no, we have a loving, good, gracious God who when you ask for the thing that you lack, what he sees in you does not preclude you getting the gift. It means that he lavishes out on top of you in loads. He gives generously wisdom through trials. He loves his children but there is a condition. There is a condition 
It is not an unconditioned promise that any Christian that goes through stuff and, and asks God for some wisdom through it, that you will receive it. Rather, rather, lest we think that prayer for wisdom is like an online purchase. I submitted it once. Pretty sure I got the confirmation email. Might have gone to my, might have gone to my, uh, my, my junk pile. I don't know. And I'm just waiting for it to arrive. And maybe even you forget about it because you're one of those people. Wives who have uh, horrible uh, online purchasing uh, habits and then you just, you know, there's just a knock at your door and there's a box at your door and you didn't even know what you purchased and then you open it up and you go, oh, that's right, wisdom, I, I asked for this thing. No, no, it's not some once made forget about it request. James is imploring us for if you need wisdom, if you truly need wisdom, if you don't just hear the preacher tell you you need wisdom and go home and say, cool, apparently I need wisdom, some wisdom would be great, see you later. If you know you need wisdom like James wants you to know you need wisdom, then the need for wisdom is always on your heart. It's burning. The, the, the heat of the trial is just fueling your prayers. God, give me wisdom. I'm, I'm a fool. I'm making a mess here. I'm ruining this relationship. I need the word of God in my life, not just in my head. And, and then you expect an actual answer, not like you've made some purchase of some dodgy little Chinese eBay shop. You know, it's only four bucks, can't hurt, it's a great sound system, will fit in my car, I'll make the purchase, let's see what happens. Don't know if it'll come, but, but we'll see. And when it comes and it turns out it's for a little toy, right? And you really want to go, ah, oh, there you go, my, my, my error. We, we don't pray like that. Like, like, like God is not some backstore, Southeast Asian, uh, 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 dodgy knick-knack God. He's the God of all the universe who spoke it all with a, with a word into existence. And when you ask him, and he has promised he heard you, and he has promised he'll give it to you, then you must expect that you will receive. Do not doubt his delivering ability. Do not doubt the integrity of his word. Know, and therefore take joy in your trial, that this may produce joy through endurance and know that in it, whatever you lack, you may ask God, and he will give you wisdom. But ask earnestly, ask with integrity, not, not passion-filled one day and then lukewarmness by Thursday, not, not filled with certainty on Sunday and then dip neck deep in your sin by Wednesday, not trusting God this week and then running off to get some foolish, make some silly reactive decision later on in the week, not, not asking God for wisdom one day, sitting down with some wise Christians that you know and getting some good advice there and then running to your non-Christian mate, getting something cheap, putting that in the machine and seeing whether that works. Don't do that. Remain steadfast. Sit patiently waiting, as Psalm 121 says. Who, who do I, where do I look for help? And, and where does my help come from? I will look to the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. My eyes go to the mountains. From him will come my help. We need to have spiritual integrity. We need to be able to wait. We need to, to be able to be faithful to God as we wait for the wisdom that he has promised. So James calls such faith, if it is trusting God like a dodgy eBay purchase. If it's praying once and failing to pray again, he calls that faith. That person with that kind of faith is tossed to and fro like a wave in the ocean. It's indistinguishable from the ocean. You thinking like that, that that's how the world thinks and you're being carried along with it and shaped by it because you are so worldly. But the good news is God gives trials and those trials will bring Christ-likeness. Here's the order, really breaking it down for you. Type A, P 
people who need it in a <coughs> lockstep order. Here's how it goes. The Christian life, 101. You have no wisdom. God sends trials. You don't consider it joy because you don't have wisdom. God sends more trials. This time, you want wisdom, but you don't consider it joy because you don't have wisdom. So you ask for the wisdom and seek quick fixes of the world's help. God gives no wisdom because of your double-minded faith, but he does send more trials. Round three, God sends trials. This time, you want wisdom, and trusting God, you consider the trial a joy. You ask for wisdom, and if your experience teaches you anything, God knows what he's doing, and he's the only one that can be trusted. Your prayer is heard, you consider the trial a joy, and you receive wisdom through it. Round four, God sends more trials. You learned wisdom comes in handy, and you consider this a trial also. Uh, sorry, you consider this trial a joy also. You ask God for more wisdom. He gives more wisdom, and you pass the trial. And therefore, you get into a, a pattern in your life of considering trials as joys, producing wisdom and Christ-likeness through them. And just as you think you've learned every lesson you might, God sends three, four, five, or six more trials. I've got no good news outside of that. When you came to Christ, you came to a Christ who suffered his whole life. When you come through the gospel to have faith in Jesus, there is no bulleted, stapled promise on the back that you will not suffer. It comes with the promise of worldly pain, but it comes with the promise that that pain will be for your good to train in you faith that never dies. So, friends, if you're a Christian whose trials all throughout your life make you bitter, you love God, you love people less and less every year. You are more and more infuriated with God, less and less affectionate for the Bible, less and less interested in what the, the church would have to offer in fellowship and the word. If that is you, then take a hard look. What has this x-ray said about the state of your soul? If you're not a Christian and you know it, then what you need to realize is, is it's not just Christians that suffer Right? If, if you're not a Christian, you've suffered, you've lost people, you've lost money, you've gone through bad health, you've, you've had horrible relationship issues, you've suffered. And yet what you have not come to realize is God's one message in the midst of trials. If, he's, if, if you need to learn one thing from the things you suffer in life, it's this. You're a sinner and life is fleeting. You do not have forever. Maybe you've had a near-death experience. Maybe people around you have passed away. What are those trials teaching you? You must flee to Jesus Christ before your time is up and you don't know when that is because only in him is forgiveness and only in him is the redemption of your life so that your trials become a blessing. You must come to Jesus. He died for your sins under the wrath of God. He rose again as conquering King, Lord, and Christ. And he rules now, speaking through his word, compelling you, be forgiven, join the family. Come, one and all, welcome to the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we can, we can amen the harsh words of James, that we lack faith, we're tossed around by the winds of the world, and that we are are blind. We're, we're not wise like we ought to be wise. Father God, re rebuke us for, for our thinking that we have plans that, that you should have consulted. Forgive us for, for being surprised by things that happened that you promised us and warned us would happen. Father God, I pray that you would, you would, you would comfort and console the hearts that in their trial 
have been so close to concluding that you don't love them. Give to them tonight, Lord, by, by the words of James, through the power of the Holy Spirit, give to them the comfort that this was sent by a loving Father to increase their faith. That in time, this will become, this will become able to help them help other Christians through their trials. Well, God, you never, ever waste an ounce, a moment, a second of suffering in this life. God, we, we love that as we, as we suffer, we have our older brother like James. We have our older brother Jesus who is, who is in heaven and yet being so separated by distance. He's not at all separated by experience. He experienced everything we have, even worse. He, he's not separated by, 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 by love and affection either. He's here with us through the Holy Spirit and we hear his words through the Bible. Father God, would you bind up souls? Would you allow us to consider things that are hard as joys? Would you bring about the fruit that you demand through these trials? And Lord, those who are unsaved, those who reject Jesus, like James, would you show them in this moment the power and the glory and the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ that is available to them? Save them, bring them into his kingdom. And Lord, may you grow this family in holiness and in numbers. May you be glorified in all that we do here. And everybody who loves the Lord Jesus Christ said, Amen. Amen.